Let's pray together. Father, we are unworthy to come before you, to worship you, and yet you have fixed our worth and our value at the cross. And so we can sing together before you and, and worship you, praise you freely and forgiven because of the blood of Christ. So we thank you for that privilege today. We pray now that we would come to trust you more through this time. We are yours. We are yours. So have your way in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would have a seat. How do you think you respond to correction in your life? Most would probably admit, not very well, right? But the way we respond to someone else correcting us often exposes our pride or our humility. Because it takes a decent amount of humility to respond well to correction, not getting upset, or listening carefully to hear exactly what others are saying, thoughtfully weighing the criticism, even if it seems untrue or exaggerated, to discern where it might contain grains of truth, and then, of course, accepting the correction into your life in order to grow or improve as a person. On the other hand, Pride usually prevents us from responding well. Like the instinctive impulse of pride is to get defensive because we feel attacked, belittled, or criticized harshly. So we feel the need to protect ourselves, to protect our status, to, to justify ourselves. I recall a, a humbling experience for me a few years ago when I received an email that was meant to lovingly critique a couple things going on at church. But I read it as a personal attack. And I sent back a very defensive message. Only later did I realize I wasn't being attacked at all. Instead, my own pride was beginning to lash out at other people around me. So how I responded to correction revealed a pride in me that needed to be repented of. And now I'm asking you how you respond to correction or constructive criticism because if you love Jesus, if you seek to follow his word, then there are going to be many times when his word corrects you in some area of your life. Perhaps that'll even happen today. So how will we respond to his correction? That's a, a vital question for our souls. 2 Timothy 3 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So that you and I, as people of God, can become complete and equipped to do good works. All scripture is meant to do that. All scripture includes everything from John 3.16 to obscure verses that you've never even heard of before. 
So over several weeks this summer, we are going obscure. And we are seeking to learn and be trained by Zephaniah, an Old Testament prophet who spoke to the nation of Judah seven centuries before Christ. And he left us a brief three-chapter book nestled in the middle of all the prophets. You can go ahead and, and open up there with me now to Zephaniah chapter 3 today. Now last week, we covered most of chapter 2, where Zephaniah proclaims God's judgment on various peoples surrounding Judah who were consistently enemies of the Lord or his people. And the matter of pride and humility went to the core of why God was bringing judgment. And for that matter, why he will yet bring judgment on our world in the future. I said last week that the Lord will judge all peoples in order to restore the humble, and the Lord will judge all peoples in order to desolate the proud. Those are the two sides of it. To say it another way, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Today, I'd like to welcome you to the second part of a sermon that you didn't know was two parts. Because chapter 3 carries right on with this theme of how the Lord is going to judge all peoples. However, you may wonder, especially if you were here with us last week, there are only four points on a compass. And we've already looked north, south, east, and west. Where else is there to look? Well, Zephaniah has one more place to look. Straight down to where he was standing, the center of the compass, if you will. See, all nations included his own nation. All peoples included his own people. And if the Lord truly will judge all peoples, that includes us and our people, too. One pastor uses the illustration of doing the wave at a sports stadium. How one, a wave starts at one point, and then it just goes in a circle to hit all points of the crowd, growing in intensity until everyone is just swept up into the wave and included in it. That was chapter 2. Okay, as Zephaniah just swept all around the nations surrounding Judah. And you might imagine, if you just picture this, the people of Judah are getting riled up now about their enemy's downfall. Yeah, Lord, get those Philistines. <laughs> yeah, take out Moab. Assyria, yeah, they're going down. <laughs> but suddenly, Zephaniah returns his focus to Judah, and specifically, Jerusalem. And he's like, don't forget, judgment's coming for you too. Maybe even most of all for you. In fact, he had more to say against Jerusalem than he did against any of the other cities he talked about. And we likewise may feel really encouraged by hearing that God will fight against our enemies, right? Those who attack, taunt, or mock the people that he loves. And we should be encouraged by that. However, we should never start to feel proud of where we stand before God. We only stand accepted and befriended by grace alone. 
So we should never be looking outside just to judge outsiders, thinking how lost, evil, or terrible our culture is, how they're headed for hell without looking inside and examining ourselves as insiders. We need to to realize that were it not for the sheer grace of God, we'd be just as lost. Our hearts are just as evil. We are capable of just as terrible things. And without Christ, every last one of us would be destined for hell. Plus, the Lord will not show favoritism. He is holy. He actually can't show favoritism. He will be just, even if and when that means justly judging his own people. And I think that is actually the major big idea here at the start of chapter 3, that the Lord will judge all peoples in order to display his justice, his righteous justice. The Lord will judge all peoples in order to display his justice. Chapter 2 ended, if you remember, by talking about Nineveh the capital city of Assyria. And it said this in verse 15, This is the exultant city that lives securely, that said in her heart, I am and there is no one else. What a desolation she has become, a lair for wild beasts. Everyone who passes by her hisses and shakes his fist. Now look at how chapter 3 begins. Says, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Sounds like he's still talking about Nineveh, right? The the change of subject is very subtle here. It, It sounds, it's not obvious. And I think this was very strategic. It's like Zephaniah wants people to think he's still addressing Nineveh. So they'll keep nodding their heads in agreement. Like, yeah, Assyria deserves this fate. It's only several verses later that we find out he's been talking about Jerusalem. Surprise! Wait, wait, you've been prophesying about us this whole time? By the time people realized he was prophesying about Jerusalem, they already have agreed with his argument against them. So Zephaniah, though, is, is not happy or harsh here. He's not flippant. He's sorrowful. The woe is like, oh, oh, sorrow awaits you. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressing city. Their rebellion and their oppression had defiled or polluted the city. And if you know, rebellion is a step worse than simple disobedience. Disobedience can be forgetting or neglecting or unintentionally not doing the right things. Rebellion is knowing the right things to do and being willfully defiant anyway. Now, in Zephaniah's day, Josiah was king. Good things were happening all over the place in the land. Good reforms. They'd rediscovered the book of the law. They were seeking to live by it. So it'd be hard to actually describe Jerusalem as rebellious and defiled right then as he was speaking. But as Zephaniah foresaw what was going to happen soon, he knew that wouldn't last. He knew that Josiah's offspring would 
revert right back to open rebellion against God. And, don't miss it, since they had the law again now, they knew better now. They'd also have this very prophecy from Zephaniah ringing in their ears. So their disobedience couldn't be excused as neglect or forgetfulness. It was rebellion. It's almost like they were flaunting their disobedience of God's word or even daring God, like, what are you going to do about it? How dare they? Now, we don't know all the reasons Zephaniah labels them as the oppressing city. We could speculate. Could have been oppressive towards the godly in the city, toward the poor in the city. Their streets could have been filled with violence and crime, like an ancient Gotham. Verse 4 talks about people there doing violence to the law of God. We do know that they earned a, a tragic reputation for being oppressive to prophets, maybe even to Zephaniah. Think of Jesus' lament over Jerusalem in Matthew. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. God longed to gather and protect and and care for his people like a hen with her chicks, but they were unwilling to be loved by him, to receive his grace. And verse 2 here in Zephaniah describes this unwillingness further. It says, She listens to no voice. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. Oh boy. This is a damning indictment. She listens to no voice. Like God had spoken to them through his law, through other scriptures, through prophets, but they weren't listening to any of them. They're they plugging their ears. La, 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 la. No one can tell them anything to do, not even the Lord. And if you think of how horrific this actually is, it was the spurning of one of God's greatest blessings. In Deuteronomy 4, Moses reminded the people, For ask now of the days that are past, and ask from one end of heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? None of the other peoples we talked about last week had this privilege. Now, the people of Jerusalem were special. They'd heard, but they wouldn't hearken to the voice any longer. Naturally, this meant they weren't heeding correction either. It says she accepts no correction. So, they weren't that different from their Ninevite neighbors and their pride after all. Actually, one can make the argument that they were even worse. Think about Jonah. Right? Jonah went to Nineveh. And when Jonah, as 
fish vomit, corrected Nineveh on their evil, what did they do? They accepted it. Right? Sure, it might have been temporary, but it was genuine. And Jerusalem, it says, she accepts no correction. Jerusalem, too, like Nineveh, thought they were safe and secure on their own. They needed no help. They thought they were right about everything. That doesn't sound familiar at all, does it? So when God tried to show them where they were off base, they wouldn't have it. If they were confronted over something, they'd dismiss it. No, that's not us. I suspect that Jerusalem's pride was at the root of their other sins here too, where it says she does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. They probably saw no need to trust God or draw near to him. It's like Yahweh was outdated. They'd moved on from such old-fashioned beliefs. If anything ever threatened them, they could trust their leaders or their military prowess or their reputation or their skills or their wealth or their knowledge. They'd be okay. Or why bother with any of their traditional religious practices which allow them to draw near to the Lord in worship? Sacrifices were costly. Pilgrimages were time-consuming. Feasts and Sabbaths were repetitive and and rote. and, And really, they were doing the exact opposite of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. It's tragic. They, like they didn't really think that they had experienced troubles because the gods of their enemies were stronger than the God who brought them out of Egypt, right? Right? Or maybe they did. And that was the worst indictment of all. As Palmer Robertson says, this glorious city, beautiful for situation, the joy of all the earth, the locale chosen of God for his dwelling place, this city has not trusted in Yahweh. From this corrupted fountain of distrust has issued the whole polluted stream of the city's sins. If they had trusted in the Lord, they never would have rebelled against him. If they had trusted in the Lord, they'd have carefully listened to his voice. If they had trusted in the Lord, they would have certainly accepted his correction Before moving on here, I suspect that we can see these things reflected in our own city and our nation. You could call Ottawa the oppressing city in a way. The city that opposes God, kills its most vulnerable people. That's oppression. Canada listens to no voice, accepts no correction, does not trust God or draw near to him. However, in the spirit of Zephaniah's emphasis here, I don't want us to just look outside. I want us to examine our own hearts and ask, are there any ways that this describes me? Is there any way that I 
have not been listening to the voice of God in my life. The ways that he has spoken to us. Are my ears open to that? Is there anywhere that I have been resisting his correction? Is there any evidence that I've been trusting in myself or others more than God? And is there any way that I have not been drawing near to God? He's welcomed you, beckoned you in so many ways. Am I drawing near to him? Like if the Spirit brings anything to your mind, don't condemn yourself over it. Just run to the cross, right, where, where Jesus suffered and died to pay for our rebellion and our pride and our lack of trust, our disbelief. Like reaffirm your trust in Christ alone to save you, to sanctify you, and to satisfy you. There is restoration and there is forgiveness waiting for all who repent and draw near to him. And if you've never done this before, we'd love to help you with that. Don't hesitate to ask. Run to the cross. As we go on, though, verses 3 and 4 show that the polluted stream of sin had flowed all the way to the upper echelons of society. Or maybe it had flowed from there, more likely. But look at it. It says, Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her judges are evening wolves that leave nothing till the morning. So, again, in contrast to Nineveh, which it says would be invaded by defiled creatures... Jerusalem's already been infiltrated. Jerusalem's already inhabited by a different kind of wildlife. Zephaniah compares their political leaders to really ferocious apex predators, lions and wolves, which is super sad because these leaders were meant to protect and lead their people, the Lord's people, like a flock of sheep not devour them for their own gain. And the religious leaders of Jerusalem were no better. Verse 4, her prophets are fickle, treacherous men. Her priests profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. See, outside of Zephaniah and others sent by God, Jerusalem had a number of false prophets too. Fickle instead of faithful unprincipled, underhanded. They were totally untrustworthy. The opposite of what a prophet should be. Right? And prophets were supposed to accurately and boldly relay God's messages. Whatever God told them, they were supposed to share. But now the Lord's truth was being replaced by liars' treachery. And the priests Priests were supposed to represent man before God and God before man, offering sacrifices, teaching the law. But they, were, they perverted both of these sacred duties. Entrusted with the holy things of God, they were profaning them. In other words, they were making them common or ordinary. They were treating them trivially. And they did violence to God's law 
mutilating it to say whatever they wanted it to say. The very people that should have led the people in holiness and justice and truth were leading them astray. Now, do you think that this kind of corruption continues in our day? Of course it does. So many spiritual leaders today promote what is evil or immoral while invoking God's name. Or they mindlessly profane the holy or ruthlessly do violence to his word. As just one of the more extreme examples I could give, I saw a video last week of a pastor in North America leading their church to recite what's called the Sparkle Creed. Don't know if you've heard of that before. I hesitate to even read it to you. You can look the full thing up if you want later. But the Sparkle Creed confesses things like, I believe in the non-binary God whose pronouns are plural. I believe in Jesus Christ, their child, who wore a fabulous tunic and had two dads and saw everyone as a sibling child of God. I believe in the rainbow spirit. I believe in the call to each of us that love is love is love, so beloved, let us love. All the blasphemous hogwash. It's like, you go take a shower now. But that's being read in churches today. Now, I don't mention that to mock anyone. I'm far more horrified than amused. And sadly, it's not satire. I checked. Our religious leaders profane what is holy and do violence to the law. And I doubt I even need to go into the corruption of politicians for you. We have much in common with the people of Zephaniah's day, with corrupt leaders everywhere you look. But here's where this is all leading, okay? Because I believe verse 5 is the key central verse in this entire passage. It's an obvious, it's like a, a glaring contrast with everything we've seen so far. Look at it. Verse 5 says, The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So, it's like Jerusalem was rebellious, defiled, oppressing, but Jerusalem's Lord was righteous and just. Jerusalem's corrupt leaders were within her, verse 3 said. But it also says now, the Lord within her is righteous. By the way, God's presence in the midst of this city is what tells us this is Jerusalem that, that he's talking about here. And in contrast, again, with the, the rampant injustice of the day, it specifies that the Lord does no injustice, none. The Lord literally cannot do any wrong. If he could, then he would not be holy and righteous. The leaders did extensive evils as during the night, while the Lord showed justice every morning, outlasting 
outmaneuvering them. The Lord within her is righteous. He does no injustice. Every morning he shows forth his justice. Each dawn he does not fail, but the unjust knows no shame. So even though the evil or the unjust would persist in their sin, without conscience, shamelessly, the Lord is untouched, untainted by all of their pollution and defilement. He's incorruptible. And he displayed or, or showed forth his justice, dispensing it all the time. Like, if anything's surprising here, it's that the Lord still hung out there. Grace is surprising here. And we can trust that the Lord is the same for us today, even though we don't dwell in the holy city. Like, we have God dwelling not just within our city, but within us as his holy people. So no matter how much injustice you witness happening in our nation, no matter how much immorality you witness in religious institutions, be assured of this, that the Lord within us is righteous. He's still here. And he does no injustice whatsoever. He can be trusted when no one else can be. Every day he displays his justice, whether or not we have the eyes to see it. Each dawn he does not fail. As sure as the rising sun, the Lord will never fail. And we can trust that wherever injustice reigns now, that it will not reign forever because the Lord will judge all peoples in order to display his justice. This is why, as Zephaniah thinks about this, he cries out, woe to the oppressing city because the Lord is perfectly just. So truly, how could they escape the righteous judgment of the one who lived among them? Now you might think, it says the Lord shows his justice, but I don't see it. There's just too much evil, pain, or injustice in our world to believe this. I get it. We could all easily give in to cynicism or despair if we kept our eyes on the world. Or as our culture seems to be rapidly going downhill, we might doubt his justice. We may suppose we need to adjust our beliefs in order to match what we observe. Kids, you're growing up in this world, this hostile, proud world, indifferent to God. And you'll be tempted to think, that you need to go along with this world's ideas in order to fit in or to survive or to thrive. Like people all around us are going to assume that the dominant culture, the majority cultures in the right, always have. But this passage shows us that other cultures have been in our exact position before, full of oppression and corruption, wondering if the Lord is here and wondering if he cares. 
It'll take faith to believe this, but Zephaniah tells us the Lord does care. And that even when we can't identify how his justice is taking place, we have good reason to believe that his justice will take place, that it is yet to be done. The Lord remains in our midst despite our world's corruption. So, don't assume that, that painful experiences mean God has forgotten us or left us high and dry. Not true. Or don't mistake God's patience or long-suffering as indifference or inaction. Also, don't presume to preside as judge over the judge. Let's be humble. Let's be patient. The Lord will judge all peoples in order to restore the humble, in order to desolate the proud, in order to display his perfect, faithful justice. And I think there's one more reason that we can see here for why he will judge all peoples. That the Lord will judge all peoples in order to draw all nations to himself. The Lord will judge all peoples in order to eventually draw all nations to himself. And this goes back to last week when we saw God ruining the proud in order to restore the humble. Zephaniah told the people of Judah to, to seek the Lord if they were humble, to seek humility. And why? Because all the nations around them were going to be judged. Thus, they needed to learn from what would happen to their neighbors. We return to this theme here in verse 6 of chapter 3, as the Lord speaks up directly again. It says, I have cut off nations. Their battlements are in ruins. I have laid waste their streets so that no one walks in them. Their cities have been made desolate without a man, without an inhabitant. So nations once known for their glory, cities once teeming with commerce, lie in ruins, all because God sent his due wrath upon them in return for their pride, in return for their corruption. He's like, you've seen this happen. I've done this. And I'm going to do it again. And he did this in hopes that it would provoke people back to him. Look at verse 7. It said, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. Then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Like, listen, when you see nations collapse in our world, don't assume that it must be the Lord's judgment. That's presumptuous. But also, don't assume it's not. God does work through countless ordinary means. So you can't just blame all of history on just war and economic collapse and natural disaster and social unrest, God often uses these things to judge the nations. And, and just like he always does, he uses these circumstances to draw people to himself, to really to destroy our trust in our idols and to make us realize our desperate need for him. In Acts 17, Paul says, 
God made every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. This is God's desire for all nations. Not just his chosen people in Israel or Judah. Remember the good news we heard in the middle of of chapter 2 last week, where it said, The Lord will be awesome against them, for he will famish all the gods of the earth, and to him shall bow down, each in its place, all the lands of the nations. You can see clearly in in verse 7 here what God desired from the people of Judah. He said, I said, surely you will fear me. You will accept correction. So he he wanted their fear or their reverent worship and their their humble accepting of correction. What he wanted to do himself is to withdraw his judgment from them. He said, then your dwelling would not be cut off according to all that I have appointed against you. Like You hear the pain in his voice. He clearly doesn't want to see them wiped out. Now we have questions here. Like if God is all-knowing, did he really think Judah would come to their senses and repent? No, like he knew the future. But he's describing his desire in human terms, saying you would think this would be enough to get you to fear me. But no. We also wonder, if God is all-powerful, why wouldn't he just make this happen? Save everyone! I don't know all God's reasons, but I think one of them must be that God doesn't want robots. He wants us to be drawn irresistibly yet willingly to him. He wants us to want him deep in our hearts. Unfortunately, in Judah's case, that desire would go largely unfulfilled. In verse 7 ends, but all the more they were eager to make all their deeds corrupt. As one scholar sums up, Grace is offered, but frivolously spurned, a sobering epitaph for the city of David. And we too have seen God's judgment take place in history. We've seen it at the cross, and we will see it again. Before that final day comes, is it enough to cause us to fear the Lord and listen to him? Have we learned from the distress and the fragility of all nations and empires on this globe? Do you fear and love the Lord now? Do you accept correction now from his word? Whether or not you do, don't miss God's final words for today in verse 8. It says, therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. 
for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord. That therefore, wait for me, doubles as a comfort and a threat. Right? It's a comfort for anyone who is humbly seeking the Lord now. That even though we may suffer or be reviled for a season, the Lord will come again. The righteous one will show forth his justice, and he will not fail. We can, and really we must, trust him now. Wait for me, declares the Lord. But this is also a threat to anyone who doesn't fear the Lord, who spurns his warnings. You could read this as a, just you wait. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. In other words, there's another greater apex predator coming. The Lion of Judah. The lions and and wolves may have the run of the place for now. But one day, they'll be the prey themselves as God rises up. Like a a lion leaping from its hiding spot to seize its prey. That phrase, rising up to seize the prey, can also be translated as rising as a witness. Like being called to testify in court. God will be there to present the evidence. Either way, it's a warning. The peoples who reject the Lord, their day in court is coming and the lion of Judah is coming. And the rest of that verse is awfully bleak, talking about my decision to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. So we wonder, why did I say the Lord is wanting to draw all nations to himself? It may more look like he wants to obliterate all nations himself. (laughs) Well, I said this because of what comes next which we'll get into next week. Spoiler alert. This, verse 8 and 9 here, is the pivot point for the whole book. Everything turns right here. Everything becomes much brighter and more beautiful from here on out. But despite that universal language in verse 8 that All the earth shall be consumed. Verse 9 is going to make it very crystal clear that not all peoples are going to be consumed. Instead, verse 8 is more that that sweeping up of all mankind for what we call judicial assessment. The The Lord will gather all the nations together, assemble the kingdoms before him, and then on that day of judgment, there will be two distinct outcomes, ruin and restoration, wrath and salvation, death and life. This is the message of the whole Bible, right? The indignation and burning anger mentioned is more than well-deserved for all of our sin, but it's gloriously mercifully only half the story. As God God gathers the nations together, he will draw all nations 
to himself, people to himself from all nations. We worship him now from the nations. As chapter 2 put it, each in its own place. And we will worship him then, all together before his throne, all the better for having waited on him and his perfect justice. As I wrap up, I'm just going to have you flip over in your Bibles to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Because if you hear all this and you question whether or not this will all happen, maybe this sounds too Old Testament to you, I'd like you to hear these words from the other side of Christ, written to believers just like you and me. 1 Peter 3, or sorry, 2 Peter 3. Starting in verse 8, it says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We're waiting on this. Now, you want to know something cool? Know what the capital city of the new heavens and new earth will be? New Jerusalem. The holy city, redeemed, purified, and glorified. Believe it or not, Jerusalem's lowest point wasn't the dark days that Zephaniah talks about. Jerusalem reached its lowest point when they crucified the Son of God. If they ever lived up to the name of a pressing city, they sure did then. But three days later, the same city witnessed the greatest miracle of all time. And then a few weeks later, they witnessed Jesus return to heaven. Shortly thereafter, Pentecost, which was the spark that began the nations being gathered together under Christ. The city of Jerusalem, it's risen, fallen numerous times since then, highs and lows throughout history. But we believe it will reach its pinnacle, its its zenith as the, the central city in God's new creation. Right? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. 
And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He's within her. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Brothers and sisters, can we wait for the Lord to bring that about? Father, we pray that you would do your work in our hearts, even as we go. You continue speaking to us. Convict us of our sin. Correct us where we are wrong. And then pour out your mercy and grace upon us again. Lord, we thank you that your mercies are new every morning. And that you are within us now that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. We choose to put our trust in you now. In Jesus' name, amen.